Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I am very excited to have on the show today Dr. Roseanne Scheinberg, who goes by Rosie. She is one of our amazing professors here, assistant professor of anesthesia and critical care medicine and cardiac anesthesia. She did her residency in anesthesiology, did a fellowship in cardiac anesthesiology, and also is board certified in integrative medicine, which is really fascinating and we may talk more about that. But today, Dr. Roseanne Scheinberg is here to talk about ECMO. Welcome, Rosie, to the show. Oh, thanks so much. Happy to be here. So we're going to do a pretty comprehensive uh, podcast that uh, Rosie's put together uh, and one of her areas of interest, which is circulatory support. We're going to focus today on ECMO, though we may come back in other sessions and do things like LVADs and balloon pumps. But for now, we're going to focus on ECMO, and let's dive right in. So let's just start at the beginning. Tell me, what is what is ECMO? So ECMO... I like to think of it as modified cardiopulmonary bypass. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. So it's just an adaption of the standard bypass system that we use for cardiac surgery. And it's really adapted for prolonged support. So when we think about bypass, it's really meant for uh, a few hours or less. Um, And ECMO tends to be hours to weeks support for people. Um, So what it really is is just a mechanical pump and an oxygenator system to provide that temporary cardiopulmonary or just pulmonary support. And the idea is that it's going to provide time for recovery, uh, durable therapy, or some kind of decision about what to do next. So remember, the the main point is it's a supportive therapy. It's not disease-modifying in itself. So the quote that goes with it is it really accomplishes nothing but facilitates everything. So it's not going to reverse any of heart or lung damage, but it may give you your body time to sort of repair um, and recover on its own. That's great. I really like the thinking of it that way. It's definitely not an end therapy. It's a bridge or a, a temporizing uh, opportunity to fix something or get you to something else. Exactly. And I think that's really key. And so you mentioned that cardiopulmonary bypass is a temporary, uh, a much short term, shorter term situation during the operation, in the operating room. And then ECMO has been adapted, you said, so that it can be used more long term. So tell me more about that. How does ECMO differ from a cardiopulmonary bypass circuit? Yeah, exactly. So... Bypass, so one of the big differences, you know, besides bypass having sort of more bells and whistles and options and things you can add and subtract for it, one of the big things is that it's an open system, um, open with this open volume reservoir that you can add volume to. It can handle air in the venous system, whereas ECMO is a closed circuit. It can't handle air in it, um, and you don't have sort of an easy, you can drop volume in and out as you need to. What bypass can do is it not only can add volume to the reservoir without entraining air in it, but one of the big things is that the venous drainage and the arterial outflow aren't directly coupled. And that becomes really important in ECMO because one does directly relate to the other and can influence it and compromise it. Um, one of the also a big difference is that these, this open system, this venous reservoir, is a stagnant kind of volume that is sitting there. So that stagnant area of blood does need high lef- levels of heparinization to avoid clot formation. So that's why when you're on bypass, you need high levels of heparinization. You're talking about ACTs way over 400 seconds. Whereas in ECMO, it's a continuously moving circuit of blood, so you need less heparinization to um, stop thrombus formation in the system. So would it be accurate to kind of picture this as, uh, and we may talk more about this, but in cardiopulmonary bypass, you essentially are taking the blood and putting it in a bucket and then separately you're taking that bucket and putting the blood back in after doing some stuff to it, whereas in ECMO, there's no bucket. It's just going around and around and around. Exactly. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. And then, as you mentioned, another key difference is that you don't need as much anticoagulation for ECMO as you do for a cardiopulmonary bypass circuit. 
That's correct. Okay. So then tell me about the goals of ECMO support. What, what, are you, what are your goals when you have someone on it? So when we think about what ECMO is providing for the person is it's really cardiopulmonary support in, in one case. And this can allow a damaged heart to recover by offloading volume and work that it's required to do. It can, in the meantime, provide blood flow or oxygenation to the heart, the brain, all the major important organs, and minimize the need for strong acting inotropic or vasoactive support in the meantime. Now on the respiratory side, what it's doing is providing oxygenated blood to the heart so it can circulate it, removing carbon dioxide from the blood. Now remember that the heart still has to do its own work. We're not providing the function of the cardiac output in this type of ECMO when you're just using it for respiratory support. So in essence, there's two configurations or two types of ECMO out there. There's VV ECMO, the last one we were talking about, which is venovenous, and all that does is you have to have stable hemodynamics. Again, this doesn't bypass what the heart is meant to do. Um, You provide respiratory support by draining blood from the venous side. It's going to go through a circuit which, again, adds oxygen, takes out carbon dioxide, and returns it to the right side of the heart. So then it will go through the heart and lungs. Um, And to do that, you're cannulating, in general, just peripheral cannulation for this. You just need venous access. And you can do this a couple of different configurations. You can do a single venous cannula where it's almost like a double lumen tube. It's one big tube, and it's got sort of a a separation down the middle. Um, And you can put that in the internal jugular vein where blood through one lumen is extracted from the vena cava or the right atrium. It's then circulated, oxygenated, carbon dioxide removed, and then returned into the right atrium where it then continues on its its circulation. And that's the cannula people know as the Avalon. That's the Avalon cannula. Yep. The other way to do it is you can have a dual-stage catheter, which drains not only the IVC but the SVC, and then the blood returns again to the right atrium to cross the the tricuspid valve. Um, So when you have the Avalon in, uh, mm -hmm. which is that one single stage that does both dual lumen uh, catheter, that goes in the right IJ, you said? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then if you have uh, dual stage, uh, you're going to have a catheter usually in what location or two catheters? Yeah, so you're going to have two catheters. You can usually drain so it can be one in the femoral vein, one in the other femoral vein. It can be one in a femoral vein, one in the internal jugular vein. Those are the most common configurations. Great. Okay. Yep. So then if we think about the other configuration, this is VA ECMO or veno-arterial ECMO, which provides complete respiratory and hemodynamic support. And this is the most similar to what we think about as cardiopulmonary bypass. So blood is going to be drained from the venous side, going through the circuit, returns to the arterial side. So as far as cannula placement goes, you have to have one on the venous side to drain it. And you can do it just like a cardiopulmonary bypass. In fact, you can adapt. If you have a situation where you can't come off the heart-lung bypass machine, you can adapt those same cannulas into VA, into a VA ECMO circuit for more prolonged support. So you can have a central cannula directly into the right atrium, and that can be your venous drainage cannula. Alternatively, if your chest isn't open, you can do this peripherally via the femoral vein or, again, the IJ. Um, the art, on the arterial side... If you are, again, on bypass or the chest is open, you can directly cannulate the ascending aorta, or you can do this, again, peripherally via um, femoral artery is the most common, axillary artery. That allows patient to kind of sit up or move around a little more, be ambulatory potentially. Um, In pediatrics, you consider the carotid artery. Um, Yeah, those are your uh, options for uh, peripheral cannulation. All right, fantastic. So we've talked about VV ECMO and the basics of that. We've talked about VA ECMO and where the cannulas would go for each of these options. So let's talk about indications for ECMO, both VV and VA. When would you use it and and what's it for? Great. So ECMO is for life-threatening cardiac or pulmonary or both problems that are unresponsive to treatment. So the patient has to be really sick but not too sick to benefit. The timing of this is critically important as well because you want someone who you're looking at ongoing or worsening tissue hypoperfusion despite escalating support, yet you want to intervene before you develop multi-organ failure. So indications when we think about the pulmonary or the respiratory side. So this is respiratory failure, right? Inability to oxygenate and or ventilate. So the classic patient where you see kind of most of the studies done are in ARDS, But this also can be used and has been used with severe pneumonia, used as a bridge to lung transplant, in post-lung transplant acute graft failure, um, 
issues where you have lung hyperinflation, status asthmaticus, um, pulmonary hemorrhage, smoke inhalation, airway obstruction, and neonates with congenital diaphragmatic hernia or meconium aspiration are two of the most common ones for neonates. So essentially, any time where you have an acute onset of inability to ventilate or oxygenate a patient, this is an option, assuming you think there's a recovery in the future. Exactly. Exactly. We have to think about what the next step is. Great. And we should maybe just say that in ARDS, at the moment, there's a lot of debate over the use of ECMO. Uh, The one big study, randomized trial that looked at it, found improved survival, but that may have been because those patients were going to an ECMO center, which was a tertiary care center, as opposed to others who were not being transferred. And so whether that's an indication that you do better at a tertiary care center or whether you do better on ECMO, it's a little unclear, Uh, but still ongoing debate about whether ECMO is a a beneficial choice for severe ARDS. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Great. So we've talked about, you just went over the indications for VV ECMO. How about VA ECMO? So in V ECMO, we're thinking about cardiac failure. From any cause, really. So, again, if we talk about transplants, post-heart transplant acute graft failure, post-bypass where you can't come off the heart-lung bypass machine adequately, any kind of decompensated cardiomyopathy, using it as a bridge to a ventricular assist device, a bridge to a decision. When we think about cost of procedures, ECMO cannulation costs maybe twelve to $1,500 to initiate. If we're thinking about... Um, a patient who may or may not be a good candidate for a ventricular assist device, think about the cost of that. That cost upwards of $80,000 for, you know, a VAD straight out of the box. So um, this may be a reasonable um, intermediate step to come to a, a final decision on that. Other causes of cardiogenic shock from ACS, myocarditis, arrhythmias like VT storm, um, drug overdose, sepsis, um, the last indication is a little interesting. So you can actually use ECMO for procedural support in patients who are either tenuous or you don't think could tolerate sort of necessary procedures. For example, in lung resections with unstable patients where you may not be able to oxygenate or ventilate while you're collapsed on one lung. If you have a patient with a compressive mediastinal mass and you don't think you could be sort of stable hemodynamically while they're you know, manipulating this and actually getting the mass out. Um, it's been used for high-risk percutaneous cardiac interventions. We've used it at our institution as a standby for obstetrical deliveries where mothers have severe cardiac disease, severe stenosis on the left side of the heart, severe pulmonary hypertension. Yeah, this is great. So I, I think all this is really important. And we'll emphasize that we talked in another podcast about mediastinal masses and how if you think that a patient may not be able to, you may not be able to ventilate or oxygenate a patient with an anterior mediastinal mass, that you should at least have them cannulated femorally for ECMO before you start so that you are ready. And if you lose the ability to oxygenate and ventilate, unlike an upper airway obstruction, a cricothyrotomy is not going to save you here. And so the only thing that can save that patient would be ECMO support. So uh, as you said, any time when you may not be able to get a patient through a procedure uh, with the normal ability in an endotracheal tube to oxygenate, ventilate, ECMO is an option whether to have it ready or whether to actually start someone on ECMO. That's right. And in those compressive mediastinal masses where you're worried, we think about temporizing measures like changing the position of the patient, potentially rolling them on the side. But if you need, you can't really finish out a surgery sort of rolled on the side. So for definitive stabilization, ECMO can be a very useful adjunct to a surgery like that. Great. So when you have just pulmonary failure, you're going to go VV ECMO. If you have cardiac failure with or without pulmonary failure, you're going to go with VA ECMO. There is, and we're not going to talk about this now, but if you have someone with cardiac failure with perfectly functioning lungs, there are some other options out there, less well-studied, but things like the impella to support the heart without uh, having any interaction with the lungs. But again, today we're going to focus on the ECMO. So great. We've talked about what it can be used for. When would you not use it? What are the contraindications? So when we think about who cannot or should not go on ECMO, one of the biggest things we're thinking about is does this patient have some kind of pre-existing condition incompatible with recovery? For example, do they have an unrecoverable heart and they're not a candidate for a transplant or a destination ventricular assist device? Do they have metastatic cancer, for example, brain metastasis? Do they have severe brain injury? Was this an unwitnessed cardiac arrest with unknown downtime? Um, do they have other severe organ dysfunction, cirrhosis, renal failure that might preclude a reasonable recovery? 
technical considerations you have to think about too. If you're thinking about peripheral cannulation, do they have an for VA ECMO say, do they have an unrepaired aortic dissection? Do they have severe aortic regurgitation? Do they have severe peripheral vascular disease that might make this untenable to cannulate them? What about in VV ECMO? Do they have cardiogenic failure? That would be a contraindication to VV if they have heart disease or heart unsustainable heart failure. We have to think about this, again, for the recovery in someone with advanced age or someone with contraindication to anticoagulation. Yeah, those all sound great. I think the only absolute one, tell me if I'm wrong, but as you, I think you mentioned, would be really if, if there's just no chance of recovery. Yeah, everything else is sort of relative, but if they are... If you do not think they have a reasonable chance of recovering, then this is not the therapy for them. Right. And it's not just a matter of uh, sort of uh, wasting money on this. This is really gets into incredibly difficult ethical situations where you have someone who is being sustained on ECMO and can for potentially an indefinite amount of time with no hope of recovery. It's really hard uh, to work with families and think about when is the appropriate time to stop that support. Yeah. ECMO, deciding to initiate ECMO can be incredibly challenging on the whole perioperative team because these questions are being asked and these are really, you know, important sort of looking at the longevity of this patient questions, and you may not know the answer to that right away. Yeah. And then the other thing I just want to revisit, so if a patient cannot be anticoagulated, uh, then they cannot be on ECMO. Is that correct? There's no way to do it? Yeah. So anticoagulation is interesting on ECMO. You know, when we initially um, usually start ECMO, if the patient's been bleeding, post-cardiotomy, and they're, you know, coagulopathic and bleeding, we initially will not start anticoagulating them right, right away. We're always balancing the risk and benefit, right? It's always this risk um, of bleeding and risk of thrombosis. Um, but we do activate the complement cascade, and so they will start developing thrombosis. So at some point, yeah, the risk of thrombosis off heparin becomes higher than the risk of bleeding. Okay, great. So in general, we anticoagulate just about everybody. Thank you. And we will re, we'll come to complications where I'm sure we'll talk about bleeding. So uh, we'll get there. But first, let's uh, talk about you've actually got a patient now, let's imagine, on an ECMO circuit. And of course, if you're attending in the unit or you're a resident in the unit or you're learning in the unit, you need to help manage this patient. You have to make decisions about what to do with this circuit and how to tell what to do. So let's, let's talk about that. How do you manage a patient who's on an ECMO circuit? Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about the cardiovascular system, let's first think about blood pressure. So what does the arterial line tracing even look like? So when we think about both VA and VV ECMO, they both deliver non-pulsatile flow via either a centrifugal or a roller pump, just like the cardiopulmonary bypass delivers non-pulsatile flow via a roller pump. So on bypass, I like to use this as an analogy. If your heart hasn't been arrested yet, meaning it's still beating, you generally will still see pulsatility with your arterial line tracing because of the LV blood being ejected. After the heart's arrested when you're on bypass and uh, there's no contractility with it, that's when you see the sort of flat line on your A-line tracing. Um, and that represents the non-pulsatile bypass roller pump. And your A-line tracing essentially then is your mean pressure or your MAP. So when you are on VA ECMO, the ECMO circuit is delivering blood in a non-pulsatile manner, just like that flat A-line tracing. However, I will say, to varying degrees, the heart is usually still pumping just a little bit, right? Right. We're not arresting hearts. Exactly. Well, we're not intending to. We're offloading the heart, but we still, you know, hope, expect that it has some contractility. So any bit of LV cardiac output will create some arterial waveform. So you're going to have a little bit, a small pulse pressure usually, and a little bit of pulsatility. Okay. So we, just to be clear, we are, at the very least, if everything's going okay, you should still see an EKG tracing. Right with someone on ECMO in an yes. ICU, mm-hmm. um, their heart hasn't been arrested. There's no cardioplegia, but it may or may not be ejecting blood as it is beating. That's right. Okay, that's right. Um, now this is a little different from VV ECMO. So the heart on VV ECMO is still creating all of the cardiac output, 100%. So you should still have a pulsatile arterial tracing. Um, and just remember, VV ECMO does not improve or contribute really at all to the cardiac output, unlike VA ECMO. So that's one of the big differences of it. All right, great. So what about things like hypertension, hypotension? What, what do you think of in terms of managing a patient's blood pressure while they're on ECMO? Yeah, so systolic and mean arterial blood pressure frequently increase with increasing ECMO flows. So systemic hypertension may even require antihypertensives. 
um, to decrease that. If you have hypertension, you don't want to create intracranial hypertension, intracranial bleeding. And this is more common with VV ECMO, right, where you have sort of Essentially, you should have normal cardiac output and normal cardiac function. Now, hypotension, on the other hand, is much more common that we see in VA ECMO, usually related to vasodilation, vasoplegia. Um, When we initiate ECMO, you have this systemic inflammatory response because the blood is contacting all this foreign surface and creating sort of cytokines and complement cascades. Um, And at this point, you may need vasopressors to maintain both blood pressure and some LV stroke volume. Um, and I just like to remind people, so both LV stroke volume, like we think about it, is related to afterload, but ECMO flows are also sensitive to afterload. And so using, you have to balance using vasoconstrictors to keep your mean pressure at an adequate perfusing level um, with increasing it enough that you're sort of decreasing the overall flow, um, the forward flow. All right, great. Now, flow, as you mentioned, is really one of the main things that you can control when a patient is on ECMO. So let's talk about flow. What are you doing with flow? How are you adjusting it? And what would make you adjust it? Sure. In VA ECMO, our flow rate is our cardiac output. So that is our liters per minute. And that is one of the big things that we're following. And it's related primarily to the pump speed and the cannula size. So the way we select cannula size is we're estimating whatever vessel diameter that we're putting it in and a little bit of sort of our surgeons and operator experience with that. So smaller cannulas, we think about they're easier to cannulate, especially peripherally. They're faster to get in. You can do that emergently. They have a lower risk of limb ischemia, but they also have a limitation to how much they can flow. So that's the benefit of the central cannulation. You can have larger cannula sizes and easier to get to sort of a normal cardiac output or a normal flow or the normal liters per minute of that uh, of that patient. So the goal is really to match this flow rate or the cardiac output with the metabolic needs of the body because the whole goal of it is just to have adequate perfusion, right? Absolutely. And what do you think of as, you know, obviously it varies based on size of the patient, but, you know, what's a normal, just so we can put it out there for people, what's a normal VA ECMO flow? What's a range of normal? When we think of sort of metabolic needs of the patient in general, we think about sort of an average adult male needing, you know, somewhere between four and five liters a minute of cardiac output. Okay, great. So you mentioned that the really what we're going to do, though, rather than shoot for just a number, because four might be enough for someone, someone else might need five, someone else might be okay at three and a half, we're going to look at perfusion. So what do we look for to assess organ perfusion? So things we look for are evidence of sort of these end organs. So do we have urine output? Do we have physical signs of perfusion? Do we have sort of cap refill? Um, what about blood lactates? How about mixed venous oxygen saturations? Now, remember, it's not a good measure um, of cardiac output to use a Swan-Gans or a PA catheter because cardiac output by thermodilution, that's not a closed system right there. You Remember, we're draining blood from the right atrium, so don't be fooled into thinking you can uh, adequately or um, reliably calculate cardiac output from your Swan-Gans catheter. And in a way, you know your cardiac output because it is your flow. It is your flow. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned blood lactate levels, so that's great, and you can trend those. Mixed venous oxygen saturations, is there a a mixed venous that you're shooting for, or are you okay with your patient who has a normal lactate but a low mixed venous? Well, when we think about global oxygen delivery, we know that that is a product of the oxygen content in the arterial blood and the total cardiac output, and that just has to meet the needs of the oxygen consumption demands of that person. Otherwise, you'll start to see those clinical signs of inadequate perfusion or hypoperfusion. So in general, when we think of a normal delivery of oxygen, the delivery to consumption ratio is generally five to one, meaning we have sort of luxury perfusion. We have luxury delivery, excuse me. So cellular respiration ends up not being a supply dependent, but just a function of tissue oxygen demand. Now, we know that oxygen consumption becomes dependent on supply when the delivery to consumption ratio becomes less than two to one. So initially, when you start decreasing oxygen delivery, the body will compensate by increasing the oxygen extraction. So when we think about a normal oxygen extraction, we normally extract, what, 20 to 25 percent, and that corresponds with a mixed venous oxygen saturation of about 75 to 80 percent. Mm-hmm. So when we start following that mixed venous and it starts dropping, when we start to see a mixed venous somewhere, you know, less than 50%, that indicates the, that extraction ratio is in that less than two to one ratio. And so it can be a measure and a guide reflecting inadequate ECMO support. 
Okay, and then you have to think about ways to increase that oxygen delivery. Absolutely. And so that's significant, too, because normally when someone's heart is working, it will increase delivery by increasing its contractility, right, a working heart. In the absence of a working heart, which is what we have on VA ECMO, we cannot do that. We can change flow, but once we've maximized our flow, the only thing that we can do to increase oxygen delivery is to increase oxygen content of the blood. Is that right? That's right. So you can increase oxygen content. On the other hand, if you want to think about what you can do, is you can decrease the body's metabolic demands. Absolutely. You can sedate the patient. You can paralyze the patient. You can modestly cool the patient. Those are all other things on the other side of the equation. Um, to decrease the overall metabolic demands of the patient to meet the flow. Great. So if the patient has signs of poor perfusion, as you mentioned, you can increase content, which would be essentially giving blood, right? Exactly. You can, as you just said, decrease metabolic rate. Yep. Uh, and we, all, we will at times paralyze patients to stop shivering if they might mm-hmm. be shivering or just to decrease their metabolic rate, further uh, sedate them, et cetera. Um, all right. Other things, what about, what do you do if the flow drops? So, you know, we said the flow is essential and it's one of the main things we control. And, and if it's going down, what are you thinking? Yeah. So that's one of the things that requires a differential in your head, right? So the flow is dropping. One thing it can be is just simple hypovolemia. These patients tend to be open. They tend to be bleeding. They tend to have ongoing coagulation issues. They have consumption of coagulation factors. So hypovolemia um, can get ahead of you. And if you don't see that, that will drop your flow if you just don't have enough volume in the system. Cannula malposition also becomes sort of a big issue. Um, These patients are often required to be sort of flat and stationary, but if you try and move them to change the position a little bit so they don't get pressure ulcers, things like that, um, then cannulas can migrate. For example, a cannula that's draining well from the right atrium can migrate into the coronary sinus or into the right ventricle, um, and then it will not be as effective as it was. You can have intrathoracic changes in pressure that uh, affect your flow, your inflow and your outflow. Pneumothoraxes, tamponades. Um, If you have VV ECMO, you have to be very careful of that right ventricle. You have to be highly suspicious. It can become dysfunctional over time with stress and strain of that added volume going in, potentially um, causing more work to it. Um, So echocardiography could be a useful tool to assess things like this. It can assess cannula position. It can assess RV function. Um, You also have to think about things like thrombosis. Is there a big clot sitting somewhere obstructing venous outflow or uh, blood inflow? Um, those are a couple things to, that you should be thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Changes. There was actually an, an interesting talk I heard at SCCM this year that was talking about an Avalon cannula and how in, a, in its ideal position, the Avalon will direct flow right across the tricuspid valve and that there are some cases of heart failure, right heart failure, that are kind of unexplained with uh, with the Avalon catheter, but it's thought to be maybe because essentially over time you're really overloading that right heart and you can get RV failure. Yeah, I like to think Avalon cannulas, again, I relate them to double lumen tubes because we know small changes in position of double lumen tubes can cause our ventilation to sort of, you know, the alarm to go off and we're not ventilating correctly. The same thing with the Avalon cannula, small changes in position. That inflow portion, if it's not directed toward that tricuspid valve, which... Initially, generally, it's positioned under TEE guidance. That can, like you said, cause volume overload problems and then uh, contractility issues down the road. Great. All right. What about with uh, VA ECMO? Is there anything specifically or different that you think about with flow, with peripheral VA ECMO? Yeah. So specific to peripheral VA ECMO, it's interesting. So this is sort of a non-physiologic way the blood flows through the system, right? So... The ECMO on the right side of the heart, we're draining blood. So ECMO's competing with the RV for preload, especially as flows go higher through the ECMO. This deprives the RV of preload. Okay, not as important a problem as you're sort of flowing normal or, you know, near physiologic flows. However, think about it on the other side. So if you have a cannula in the femoral artery, that's where the blood return is going. So blood is re-entering the body through the femoral artery, and now it's traveling retrograde up the descending aorta and around the arch down towards the aortic valve. So this pressurizes that systemic circulation, especially that afterload, as we like to think of it, and increases the work on the left ventricle. So that in itself can decrease the stroke volume. It can make the LV work harder. The LV, which is already struggling, that's probably why we're on VA ECMO to begin with, um, can get distended. 
if that pressure is high enough in the LV, you can have subendocardial hypoperfusion. You can have thrombus formation because now you have a low flow state where you have sort of back pressure on the LV and very little contractility and forward flow. That back pressure and distended LV can distort the annulus of the mitral valve. You start getting mitral regurgitation. Now you have back pressure into the LA. That causes back pressure into the pulmonary vascula- vasculature, causing pulmonary hemorrhage. Now you start to see blood coming out of your ET tube with the secretions. Wow, okay. And is that, Rosie, why you said before that severe uh, aortic regurgitation might be a contraindication to ECMO? Absolutely. That's exactly what happens. That back pressure then is directed right into the LV. So if you start to see this, you start to see your LV getting distended, uh, what can you do about it? Yeah, so then you have to think about a strategy. How do we decompress this LV? And you do have a few options. If you think your whole system is volume overloaded, you can try diuresing your patient. You can improve your contractility with inotropes if you have room to go up or add different receptor types um, with different drug therapy. You can decrease afterload with vasodilators if you have enough mean arterial pressure, enough pressure to handle it. You can do mechanical decompression with things like an intraortic balloon pump. Or you can start adding little vents that will help uh, mechanically drain these things. Like you can add an LV vent, you can add a percutaneous LA vent, and these two things can also mechanically help drain the LV and, and decrease the decompression. Great. All right. So how about the pulmonary system? What, we've got a patient on ECMO, either VA or VV, and presumably, at least at first, they're still on a ventilator. What are we, how are we managing them on that ventilator, and what, are we, what changes are we making? Yeah. So vent management, it's really individualized for these patients based on the specific disease and the level of ECMO support. So if you are to have full bypass flows, so if you reach that, you have full bypass flows, and the whole flow, the oxygenation, ventilation is taken care of by the ECMO, um, you have a lot of options. Your vent settings could be just at what they call kind of rest settings, which includes low CPAP, I mean, excuse me, low peak pressures, PEEP, low respiratory rates, low FiO2 to avoid barotrauma. And that's kind of what you aim for, those low settings in patients who have ARDS, where you want the lungs, you don't want barotrauma, and you want to give the lungs time to sort of recoup and recover. Um, If you have full flows via your ECMO circuit, you can just do low CPAP. You can do just uh, uh, higher PEEP levels. You can do frequent pulmonary lavages, depending on sort of the status of the lungs and what they need at the time to help them recover. We know, what we try and avoid is we know that there's something called atelectrauma. So that's lung injury associated with repetitive collapse and reopening of the alveoli during inspiration and recollapse during expiration. So that is something we are aiming to avoid in these patients. Great. So the patient on ECMO... It is accurate to say they don't actually have to be on a ventilator at all, assuming that they're getting full support from the ECMO circuit. Correct. Okay. And there are some centers, Columbia being one, where they're, at least with VV ECMO, they're getting more and more patients off the ventilator. We're not doing that here as much, though we have done it in the cardiac CQ. We have extubated people on ECMO, but it's possible. And so, as you say, because they don't need the vent, you have a lot of leeway with how you manage the vent itself. You sure do. Mm -hmm. I'd say probably the most common thing we do here in the cardiac CQ is keep the patient on the vent, but use what we would call extremely low tidal volume ventilation, so maybe somewhere in the three to four mLs per kilo of ideal body weight uh, tidal volume. Yep. All right. Yeah. And the goal of that, you know, especially in patients with like ARDS specifically. So we know specifically in ARDS that these patients have areas of the lung that are normally functioning. And then they have other areas that are really consolidated and sort of these non-aerated lungs. So mechanical ventilation, especially in lungs like ARDS lungs, if you use normal tidal volumes, they're going to expose those aerated alveoli to really just much larger volumes and pressures than the consolidated areas. So then you're going to have sort of areas of trauma and lung injury. So that's what we're trying to avoid by either full or um, substantial support by ECMO. All right. So those are the two kind of primary systems we think about, the cardiac system and the pulmonary system. But there are, of course, others. How about the renal system? What issues do you think of with a patient's renal system when they're on ECMO? Yeah. So it's the same thing I think about when we have patients on coronary pulmonary bypass is the renal system is the next large organ system that is sort of at risk for having uh, um, acute inflammatory injury to it. So in general, we 
when you put a patient on ECMO, they, uh, in the first 24, 48 hours, you usually see them experience sort of oliguria. Because, again, we talked about putting the patient on ECMO, that circuit and the blood contacting foreign surface triggers an acute inflammatory reaction. So this leads to capillary leak, intravascular volume depletion, and that's where you see ATN and oliguria. Now, if all goes well, ideally, then you're going to start to see recovery. We're going to have intravascular volume sort of repletion, and you're going to have the patient start a diuretic phase. And that's an early sign of recovery. Unfortunately, if you don't see that and renal insufficiency doesn't improve, then, um, you know, one paper showed almost up to 60% of patients needed renal replacement or essentially dialysis. Now, interestingly, dialysis can be easily added to an ECMO circuit. You don't need any extra cannulas, any extra lines. It can be sort of built right into the circuit itself. And in this case, it's we call it CRRT or continuous renal replacement therapy um, because it's sort of an ongoing process instead of dialysis is like a big bolus over a couple hours and then you're done. Right. And it's pretty common, right? I, I think there's a, a fair number of patients who end up needing it on ECMO. Absolutely. A fair number need it. And also it's just having an association with needing it and having a higher mortality. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's not a good sign if you do need it. Not a good sign. All right. How about the brain? What do you think of in terms of uh, what goes on with the brain in ECMO? The brain. So when someone goes on ECMO, there is, you know, there's a high association with CNS complications. Now, that's not only due to just ECMO, but a lot of that is related to the degree of either hypoxia or acidosis or sort of the primary insult that led them to needing ECMO in the first place. So one, you know, a couple of papers say up to 48% of patients on ECMO have some kind of CNS type complications. Now, you're always scanning for those. You're avoiding paralytic agents. You're trying to perform regular sedation vacations to be able to follow the neurostatus. Um, and if you have someone who you suspect or you've diagnosed as having seizures, those you want to really aggressively treat as well. All right. Do you think about patients on ECMO as being at high risk for infection? Yeah, they sure are. You know, you um, they have lots of foreign cannulas and objects going in and out, they may have an open chest. So these are certainly at high risk of infection, and you have to be very careful with your aseptic treatment of them. Um, what's recommended is sort of routine, regular cultures. They may not always show sort of the normal systemic signs of developing an infection. However, it's not recommended to start prophylactic antibiotics on these patients. All right. I think that's really important. You don't want to be putting every ECMO patient on antibiotics. And one of the differences, as you mentioned, is that don't look for these patients to spike a fever, or, or if they do, as in a patient who's on continuous renal replacement therapy, that's a big deal because we're controlling their temperature. So if they're spiking a fever through that, it's probably a really intense and significant fever, whereas they can have what would be a fever in anyone else that will be normalized by the circuit. That's right. That is an important point, uh, uh, Jed, that on the, just like on cardiopulmonary bypass where there's a heat exchanger, you can heat and cool the patient on ECMO. Great. So... What about the hematologic system? You've mentioned before that they're at risk for bleeding. What do you think of uh, along those lines? Yeah, so the reason they're at risk of bleeding, not just because they have cannulas everywhere, they have an open chest, but is, is also important. So platelets are continually consumed. They're activated by exposure to these foreign services during ECMO, so those need to be continuously monitored and replaced just to keep platelets you know, somewhere in the fifty to 100,000 range. Um, the heparin drip we talked about sort of trying to balance that bleeding clotting risk, we're looking for an ACT somewhere in the 180 to 242 range. Now, that's a we usually start with this sort of point-of-care test. That's not the gold standard, though. The gold standard is this anti-factor 10A because this assay um, is more specific just to the anticoagulant effects of unfractionated heparin. It's not influenced by coagulopathy, thrombocytopenia, dilution, sort of all the other issues we have going on which may affect the ACT. It's not as sensitive an assay. Right, absolutely. Although I think very commonly we're looking at APTTs and keeping it within what we would call a therapeutic range of usually in our unit somewhere in the 50 to 65 range. Now, you other, are in the unit. I right. will say when you go back and forth for procedures, for chest washouts mm -hmm. and recannulations, oftentimes we use more point-of-care tests rather than waiting for labs sent to the to the core lab and you know waiting for those APTT results. So. Absolutely, and I wish we had those in the unit too because it takes <laughs> hours to get those results. So you are, when, when the patient's going back to the operating room and they're on ECMO, you're looking at ACTs? That's correct. Okay, mm -hmm. but you're saying that the gold standard really would be those factors. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, HIT is another interesting thing, and I don't know if you have thoughts on this, but you see a patient on ECMO, their platelets are decreasing. When do you think about HIT versus just normal platelet destruction and consumption from the ECMO circuit? Right. 
So HIT is a challenging diagnosis in and of itself in sort of a, a normal patient. Um, when you think about HIT, it's it's a lot of clinical timing. Have they have they been, been exposed to heparin for the right amount of time to develop antibodies? Um, but there is an ongoing consumption, like we talked about, about platelets. So it is, um, it can be a challenging diagnosis to make. Now, you're also looking for evidence of thrombosis, too. So that's going to be sort of another, you know, generally patients who are just having a consumptive coagulopathy and bleeding, you generally don't see systemic signs of thrombosis, whereas that is one of the heralding signs of HIT. That's a great point. So keep that in mind out there. If you're if you're trying to decide, and this is something we are struggling with all the time, HIT versus just normal ECMO consumption of platelets, often you're going to end up sending those tests anyway, but looking for that thrombosis is a really a key distinction. All right. So we've talked a lot about how it works and the things you can change and the things you can manipulate. What main complications do you think of with ECMO and how do you manage them? Yeah. The biggest one by far is bleeding, right? We have, you know, between 30 and 50%. It's the most frequent complication of ECMO. You have systemic heparinization. You have platelet dysfunction. You have clotting factor hemodilution, all going on sometimes with open body parts, recent procedures, temperature regulation issues. We know cold path patients are more coagulopathic, so all these things lead to bleeding. So you are checking routinely factors, repleting as needed, reassessing the need for heparinization based on sort of how much output and bleeding chest tube collection that you have at the time. Um, Bleeding into the lungs. We talked about sort of backing up that pressure with that retrograde blood flow and peripheral VA ECMO with poor contractility, causing high pulmonary pressures, edema, pulmonary hemorrhage. On the other side of bleeding is thrombus. Now, we have thrombosis and embolus much less than we have bleeding, but it's, it's not insignificant. You know, 10 to 15% of the time, we will see issues with clots. Now, um, some of these are... I will say worrisome but less significant. You start to see little clots sort of in um, in parts of the, like around the membrane oxygenator mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, but those become worrisome that you have to think about how your, you know, heparinization strategy or is the membrane oxygenator time to just replace that piece of the mm-hmm. ECMO circuit. Sometimes that's safer to do. Absolutely. In fact, you'll see the perfusionists will will look at the oxygenator and just get a visual idea of how much clot is forming there in terms of starting to think about when it needs to be replaced. Yeah. And that's one of the big differences. I, I didn't mention that earlier, but when we think about what's different between a bypass and an ECMO circuit, the membrane oxygenator um, is one of the short, has probably of the whole circuit has the shortest lifespan because mm-hmm. it gets sort of, you know, clogged off with little different particles going through the circuit. So that is sort of the weak point. And the bypass circuit is FDA approved for less time than an ECMO sort of oxygenator pieces. So if you do see clot, then as we just mentioned, you should think about HIT. It doesn't mean it is HIT, but you should think about it. And if someone, if they test positive for HIT, you'd want to get them off the heparin and put them on something like Bival, Bivalirudin, uh, or Getraban. So keep that in mind. It may or may not be HIT if they, if they clot, as you said. Yeah. The other the other uh, place where we see thrombus is not just sort of in the circuit, but again in that left ventricle um, because of poor contractility. So just like when we think of atrial fibrillation, we think of LA appendage clot because that's an area of sort of low flow state. Now we have a whole LV that is um, contracting very poorly. So you have to be very careful about the apex of that and look very carefully through echoes and things like that to, uh, to assess for thrombus. Because that can be risky, right? If that embolizes, then you're looking at uh, systemic strokes, coronary Absolutely. artery occlusions, things like that. Absolutely. All right. What about neurologic complications? You just mentioned stroke. Yeah. Stroke, when they look especially at ARDS patients, up to 10% of people with ARDS on ECMO in, the, in this kind of national or international registry um, had evidence of stroke. Now, stroke and neurologic complications in general are really variable. You know, they kind of, in this registry, the ELSO, which is kind of the international registry of these um, of ECMO patients, um, 4 to 37%. And these include all varying neurologic diagnoses from coma of uncertain cause to encephalopathies to anoxic brain injuries um, plus strokes. Um, we know that, again, if you have a neurologic complication, just like if you have sort of needing CRRT and have renal failure, um, that portends lower survival rates. Um, one specific factor that I like to mention that could potentially impact neurologic function um, is uh, on peripheral VA ECMO, you can have some mixing in the upper body. So 
Here's the, here's the scenario. So you're infusing the oxygenated blood in the femoral artery. It's flowing up retrograde, up the descending aorta, around the arch, down. If the LV is still ejecting poorly deoxygenated blood because you're you know, your lungs aren't functioning well and it's not being well oxygenated, that deoxygenated blood that's ejecting out the LV is now traveling up the ascending aorta and mixing with this blood that's coming up the descending aorta. So oftentimes you get the upper body, the head vessels, the, you know, upper arms have uh, less well oxygenated blood perfusing them. So that is something, it's called Harlequin syndrome, where you have more deoxygenated blood sort of in the upper body, more oxygenated blood and better perfused organs in the lower part of the body. Um, and that is something that needs to be monitored in peripheral VA ECMO. Yeah, and how do you monitor that? Yeah. Well, you, <laughs> I'm asking my own questions here, Jed. Yeah, so, <laughs> please, please. They're good questions. <laughs> so generally, the best place to monitor that is monitoring arterial oxygenation saturation of the right upper extremity, because that's the part where you may see kind of that mixing the most. And then if it's a problem, there is a solution. So you can correct it. If you have VA ECMO, by infusing some oxygenated blood, so having like a little branch of oxygenated blood going into the right atrium, this is called VA-V access. So it's VA ECMO, but you're adding another sort of oxygenated blood on the venous side to mm-hmm. correct this problem. Great. So you want to be looking at that right upper extremity. I think also important to think that even if that looks okay, there is a, the one thing you can't monitor are the coronaries, and those are even a little more proximal than that right uh, upper extremity branch and so you do want to just keep in mind that it is possible you've got some mixing right at the at the coronary so your heart may not be seeing that same oxygenation that your right arm is seeing absolutely definitely a risk all right so we talked about neurologic complications do you think of uh, complications sort of specifically related to the cannulas? And if so, what do you think of there? I do, because there actually is, you know, a fair number of cannula-related complications. Everything from just mechanical disruptions, so vessel perforation, arterial dissections, to these cannulas blocking these distal vessels. So you have distal ischemia. Um, incorrect location, a venous cannula in an artery. You can have a pseudoaneurysm development at the site of insertion. Now, if you do have that distal limb ischemia, you've mentioned a lot of, of sort of uh, ways to fix some of these complications with extra little cannulas, and sometimes you'll put a reperfusion cannula around that? Yeah. So one option is to add an anterograde perfusion catheter sort of down to that leg to anterograde perfuse that distal leg just to prevent ischemia. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. All right. So uh, what about recirculation? We hear about that a lot with VV ECMO. Tell me, what is recirculation and what do you do about it? Yeah, so recirculation is specific to VV ECMO. And the way I think about it is, so you have a cannula that is draining blood and another cannula on the same venous side, and generally they're really located in close proximity to each other, that's reinfusing blood. So if you reinfused oxygenated blood and some of that is immediately sucked right out into the drainage cannula, you're not going to be... Your, heart, your right heart and your body's not going to be seeing the maximally oxygenated blood. You're going to be diluting yourself with deoxygenated blood because some of that oxygenated blood is going to get sucked right back down into the circuit and just like a loop. So that is recirculation. Now, that recirculated blood doesn't contribute to systemic oxygen delivery. So VV ECMO really provides decreased efficiency, especially compared to VA ECMO for oxygenation. So it can be hard to achieve 100% oxygen support on VV ECMO. But there are some things to think about in addressing that issue. Um, And one of them is cannula position. Mm -hmm. So this recirculation, if the ports, the two ports, the drainage and the reinfusion port, are really close together, you can expect a higher amount of recirculation. Makes sense. Also, if you have a higher pump speed sucking that blood out, then that in general correlates with a higher uh, recirculation rate. You know, that depends on the cannula size type, but in general, sort of, blood is going to go down the path of least resistance. Also, if you have an increase in intrathoracic, intracardiac pressures, pneumothorax, tamponade, which impedes venous return to the heart, then that infusion cannula is going to be the path of resistance. You're going to have more recirculation in cases like that, too, where the intrathoracic pressure is higher. Great. And the other thing that uh, I heard talked about at SCCM was with the Avalon, and I think you mentioned this earlier, if that inflow tract is ejecting blood right across the 
right across the tricuspid valve, then you have actually very little recirculation, as you can imagine, because if you have a competent tricuspid valve, it's not going to come back to get sucked out. But if you don't, if that gets switched around a little bit, if that cannula is rotated or up or down, and it's not directed across that valve, you actually can have really high rates, 50% or so of recirculation. That's right. And when it's maximally and ideally placed, you can have as little as 2% to contrast that recirculation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. So let's say you, you see recirculation happening. What are you going to do about it? So strategies to, recircul- to decrease recirculation include moving the tips of those two cannula farther apart. Um, you can add a second drainage cannula at another point in the body so you could lower the pump speeds, avoid so much negative pressure going in, or you can reposition that reinfusion direct jet, like you said, the Avalon, get that ideally placed, directed toward the tricuspid valve. Great. Those are your biggest maneuvers to decrease it. And is it correct that the way you would know that recirculation was happening, it's not like you would see it visually in terms of the circulating blood, but you would just see eventually, if it got bad enough, desaturation? That's right. Yeah. You're going to see lower arterial oxygen content. Great. All right. And then any other complications that we haven't thought of? Anything else you want to mention? You know, one thing that textbooks and nobody really talks about, but I think is one huge iatrogenic thing that we can do for patients and we can do to them is when we move them. Now, these patients are going to and from scanners. They need MRIs to check their brain function. They need, you know, peg tubes and feeding tubes. And some of these things aren't always done at the bedside and chest washouts. Dislodging the cannulas when you're moving patients around is a huge risk. So anytime you're taking care of these patients and just rotating them in bed, moving them from location, you have to be especially vigilant about watching the cannula sites so they don't get accidentally dislodged. I mean, these are life-saving cannulas, so if they're dislodged, you're in a world of hurt. Yeah, and I think you hit upon something really important, which is the controversy we face a lot with, on one hand, we don't want to move these patients at all for the reason you just said, and on the other hand, The more that they, just like anyone else in the ICU, the more we can get them up and early mobilized early, some people think the better they do. And so there's, you know, definitely with VV ECMO, we see some patients, as I said, even getting extubated and doing aggressive physical therapy. That's usually going to be with the Avalon in place. But there's, I think, a lot of debate over what do we do with patients on VA ECMO? What do we do with peripherally cannulated or dual stage cannulated VV ECMO? We know they're getting deconditioned but moving them has the risk of dislodging those cannulas, which could be a very uh, fatal mistake. Yeah, it's a big challenge. All right. So we've got a patient. We put them on ECMO as a bridge to recovery, and now we think they're ready. They've recovered. So what do we do in terms of weaning off ECMO and seeing if a patient is ready to come off? So when we're thinking about, let's start with VV ECMO. So we've had respiratory failure. We are starting to see improvements in the chest X-ray. The pulmonary compliance on the ventilator seems to be improving. Our arterial oxygenation um, is improving. So weaning trials, what we can do is we can eliminate all the oxygen gas flow through the oxygenator in the ECMO circuit. So blood flow will remain constant and constantly recirculate, but there's no gas transfer in the circuit just in what the lungs are doing. So you can observe for several hours this way in which you can sort of adjust ventilator settings and see if you can optimize the patients and see if they can tolerate um, and maintain their oxygenation ventilation off ECMO. Now, since the circuit is still circulating, even though oxygen and CO2 are not being removed, you still have that good flow through the circuit, so you're not at risk of clotting it off. You haven't stopped the circuit. That's in contrast to for VA ECMO and cardiac failure. So what we are looking at there is we start to see more pulsatility on the arterial line tracing, um, indicating improved LV output. Now, we might see that in concert with trying to slowly wean the flows down just a little bit to see what the LV can do on its own. Um, So what we do for a weaning trial in VA ECMO is slow the flows down. You can do a temporary clamping of both the drainage and the infusion lines. Now, well, if you do that, you have stopped the flow through the cannulas, you can still recirculate the ECMO circuit itself. So you can do kind of a little loop to try and keep the blood flow from getting stagnant and clots from forming that way. But a VA weaning, you have much shorter time um, to see if the heart's going to tolerate it than VV weaning, just because of higher risk of thrombus formation in the circuit. All right. So that's really interesting. You are going to turn down the flow, but only for a short time and see how the heart does. Now, when when these guys go back to the operating room from the unit and potentially for a decannulation, 
and meaning to have the ECMO circuit taken out, do you do, do they have a certain amount of time that you tend to see that they'll kind of watch and see how things go in the operating room, or have they already done those tests in the unit? So in the unit, what you do is you generally slow the flows down, not turn them off, but slow the flows down and look for indicators of cardiac contractility, cardiac function. When we move the patients then into the operating room, what we do is we first maximize, we may increase inotropic support by increasing um, inotropics, vasopressors, things like that to get the pressure, maximize sort of whatever contractility and give them the best chance of coming off the ECMO circuit as possible. We always do this under echocardiographic guidance. So we have a transesophageal echoes that are placed. Then we will slow the flows rather quickly, clamp them off, and watch the heart on echo. Watch our blood pressures, watch our contractility, watch the RV, watch the LV, and see how they tolerate it. And fairly rapidly, you know, within five, ten minutes, we're making the decision because there's not long until all this stuff sort of clots off. So we don't have long to decide, but that's sort of the process in the OR. All right, let's take a minute now because I realize we haven't actually kind of just given that very basic information to people. What are the settings that you can adjust? We know that on the ventilator, people hopefully are aware on the ventilator, they can adjust things like FiO2 and the respiratory rate and the PEEP. But on the ECMO machine itself, Rosie, what do you adjust? What are the things you have control over on that machine? Yeah, so there's three big things that you can control on the ECMO circuit. And part of them correlate with what we're changing on the ventilator. So you can adjust up and down the FiO2, just like you can on a ventilator. You can adjust the sweep, and what that does is that is basically the CO2 exchange. The higher the sweep or the higher the flow over this, you have more CO2 exchange, and you can lower your CO2 more rapidly. And lastly is the RPMs or the flows themselves. You can dial up or down the flows. All right, fantastic. We have covered so much good stuff. Is there anything else you think we should add about ECMO? The last thing I like to talk about is there are some physics terms that they like to um, – you know, ask when they do board questions and things like that. So the the two configurations, the VV ECMO and the VA ECMO, they like to talk about it in terms of circuits. And when we talk about circuits in physics, we talked about circuits being in parallel or being in series. So when we think about the VA ECMO circuit, we are bypassing the heart and lungs. So that circuit is in parallel to the heart and lungs. So VA circuit is in parallel to the heart and lungs. The VV, in contrast, is in series because we're pulling it out, we're circulating it through ECMO, and then we're going through the normal route. So we're adding, we're adding a, a, a circuit there. So VA ECMO is in parallel circuit. VV ECMO is in series. Now, the last thing I want to ask you about is how effective is ECMO? What's the survival like for people on ECMO? And that's always what people think about when they put people, you know, when we start to think about who can initiate ECMO. Um, and that's sort of getting better over time, but it's not perfect. And that's why ECMO is this um, tool to use, but it's not an endpoint in itself that is um, right for everybody. So overall, we can get about 70% of people weaned off of ECMO. And of those about almost 60% will survive to leaving the hospital in some form or other, transferring to a, a rehab or going home. Okay. Now, that is better in neonates and peds than it is in adults. So, for example, the cause of why you went on ECMO also contributes to how well you do. The worst outcomes are in putting people on ECMO who were getting CPR. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, that, that kind of makes sense, right? Because those are people who might not have survived anyway. So ECMO was sort of their last their last ditch a, a, attempt. Um, people who go on ECMO for respiratory causes generally have better outcomes and survival rates than people who go on ECMO for cardiogenic causes. For example, in adults, 57% of people who went on for respiratory causes will make it to discharge, and cardiac only 41%, versus if you went on ECMO from CPR, 28%. Great. So really uh, interesting differences between kids and adults, and even though we say overall 60% may survive to discharge or transfer, only a portion of those are going to have a completely intact neurologic system, Mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. So a lot of this is going to depend on individual preferences in terms of quality of life as well. And that's right. All right. Any last words at all, Rosie, or did we cover it all? I think we got through a lot of this, Jed. What do you think? I think we did. And I want to thank you so (laughs) much. This was amazing. I look forward to doing more episodes with you in the future. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, this was fun. All right. That's it for today. 
Remember, you can check out the website at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can sign up for the mailing list in the upper right-hand corner of the homepage, and you'll get notifications when there's a new episode or any other interesting tidbits that I may at some point send around. You can leave comments uh, about this episode or any episode, but specific to this episode, let us know how do you use ECMO at your institution. Is there anything different about what we've gone over and what you've gone over? What else can you add to what we've said? You can always email me as well at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. Thanks so much for listening. For Dr. Roseanne Scheinberg and the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.